In his letter declaring St. Albert the Great to be the patron saint of students of the natural sciences, dated the 16th of December, 1941, Pope Pius XII declared, May St. Albert, who in his own very difficult times proved by his wonderful work that science and faith can flourish harmoniously in men through his powerful intercession with God, arouse the hearts and minds of those who devote themselves to the sciences, to a peaceful and orderly use of the natural forces, the laws which, divinely established, they investigate and seek after. To many, it might seem quaint to name a Dominican who lived 300 years before the scientific revolution to be the patron saint of scientists. But I want to argue that the logic uh, and importance of St. Albert for the sciences is not simply uh, as a holy intercessor, but as a teacher and example for students of nature today. To do this, it will be important to look at exactly what Pope Pius meant by Albert's own very difficult times, which will occupy the first half of this lecture. Then we will look to our own difficult times and see just how the harmony that Albert found between science and faith in his day is not just a quaint model or exemplar, but is in some detail the foundation for a healthy understanding of what modern science is and should be. So I'm going to give a brief summary of the intellectual climate of the day uh, of, of St. Albert's day in the, uh, uh, in the, in the 13th century. Uh, and broadly speaking, the study of nature uh, before the time of St. Albert uh, followed a broadly platonic model. It was uh, leading up to and during St. Albert's lifetime that the works of Aristotle the, uh, on natural philosophy were first rediscovered in the uh, Christian West. Uh, and before that, there was a very limited selection of works uh, coming from the ancient Greeks, and many of them comment uh, uh, summaries and translations. Mm -hmm. So, roughly speaking, the standard view in kind of early medieval scholasticism in the centuries before St. Albert the Great drew on uh, primarily Platonic sources that had been integrated into Christian thought by the Church Fathers, and in particularly on uh, the Timaeus, which was known in part uh, in translation uh, by, by the students of the day. And this Timaean Platonic view of the world had an importance for nature, but it was a sort of mystical view of nature as a sign of divine work. The physical world, in a certain sense, are just vestiges of the more perfect world of the forms, the power and the wisdom of God uh, who created things. Now, the natural world was worthy of wonder and of praise, but it really wasn't worth a whole lot of systematic study. It was uh, a field for coming up with analogies and metaphors for uh, mystical thought about uh, God as creator. In a certain sense, there was no confidence that we could say anything absolute or true about natural things, because we need more than simply natural facts to get to these higher forms and ideas that are the true source of wisdom. And ultimately, science is subordinated to higher philosophy and to theology. Now, in uh, the decades leading up to St. Albert the Great, there was a slightly different form of Platonism that, that arose that did take the, the natural world much more seriously as a object of study and of order. Uh, and this is often referred to as the Oxford Platonism movement uh, coming out of certain uh, uh, um, scholars connected with uh, uh, Oxford in England. And it was still broadly platonic, but at this point, there had been some introduction of Aristotle, uh, and there was some, as well as his, as his Arab commentators. 
And so this a more developed understanding of a different understanding of how to apply the platonic idea to the natural world. And examples of this, broadly speaking, could be Robert Grossetest, Robert Kilwerby, Roger Bacon. Well, there are others, and, and uh, it's debated exactly how they all fit exactly into this. But broadly speaking, this version of Platonism emphasized mathematics as a method for studying nature. It was, in a certain sense, almost Pythagorean, uh, in the Platonic sense of Pythagorean. They did draw on certain aspects of Aristotle. They commented on his posterior analytics and logical works that were being rediscovered. But there was a sense in which nature properly understood was a mathematical object. There's a sense in which we had to look to mathematics to say anything concrete about nature. There's a certain sense, for instance, in Robert Grosset's test, in which he has a cosmology of light, where all things are somehow made of light in a certain sense, and that, therefore, the proper and best way to understand nature was through geometrical optics, a very mathematical study. And in some sense, they were, in, they were much more interested in the details of nature and even a sense of observation and experimentation. And yet, ultimately, to say true things about nature... Uh, really, all you were doing was saying true things about mathematics, that is, the root of nature. Now, parallel to this were the new translations that uh, came out of Na Aristotle's own natural philosophical works, primarily coming out of the uh, Arabic translations of those works and commentaries on those works. And while there was uh, simultaneously a certain great interest in this newfound way of thinking about the natural world, there was also a lot of suspicion. Uh, in particular, it was seen that certain aspects of Aristotle's thought were explicitly contrary to the faith, and in fact were. He had claims that uh, about the eternity of the world, uh, that there had been no beginning to the, to the universe. Uh, there seemed to be no emphasis on God as creator in the way that Aristotle talks about the divine. And even particularly coming out of certain readings of Aristotle from the Arabs, uh, from Arabic scholars, there were even questions about the individuality of the human soul. And so while there was great interest in these newfound insights of Aristotle, there was also great worry that this was importing some sort of pagan and heretical ideas. Now, you might say Plato himself would have been pre-Christian and, uh, and pagan, and yet there had been centuries of uh, time for the church to integrate the Platonic thought uh, in uh, with, with the Christian revelation throughout the, the period of the church fathers and continuing. But this new source of knowledge, this new ideas seemed on the surface to be contrary to the faith. So in this milieu, Albert entered and in one sense embraced Aristotle very strongly. Uh, he, if you look at his works, he comments on nearly every single one of Aristotle's extant, uh, the, the works of uh, the extant works of Aristotle that were known in his day. Uh, and uh, even some that were not actually from Aristotle, but thought to be. But importantly, he also saw the limitations of Aristotle. He said, for instance, if there be a disagreement in matters of faith and morals, then I follow Augustine rather than the philosophers. But if it is a question of medicine, then I much prefer Galen or Hippocrates. Or if there be question of natural science, then I prefer Aristotle or someone who is expert in these matters. So we understood that Aristotle was not the source of all knowledge, and we need not take everything that Aristotle had to say exactly on face value. And yet he also recognized that there was 
a proper value to the work of Aristotle in the study of nature, and even a proper value to the study of nature independent of how it might lead us or point us to God. That there was something proper to nature itself. Now, again, he was able to criticize Aristotle and often did, drawing himself on many other Augustinian and Platonic ideas in his work. He famously stated that whoever believes that Aristotle was God ought necessarily to believe that he could not have erred. If, however, one believe him to have been mere man, without doubt he could have erred as we, even we do. So he was not against correcting Aristotle, um, pushing against uh, mistakes he found in Aristotle, but he still thought that the proper principles of natural science, the study of the natural world, were truly Aristotelian and not Platonic. That he followed Aristotle quite strictly in how he understood the uh, division of human understanding and reason, seeing a proper division between the science of the study of nature and the science of mathematics and the science of metaphysics. That there is a difference between the way that we approach the natural world and the way that we approach mathematical argumentation uh, in geometry and arithmetic and in a different way in which we think about the principles of being as such that go beyond simply material things into the possibility of the immaterial and the foundations of what it means to exist. Now, these distinction between metaphysics and mathematics and natural science is present even in, for instance, the Oxford Platonists. But for them, there was a clear subordination that while you could talk about a natural science, it was really only actually a subset of mathematics, and that mathematics was really only a subset of metaphysics. Whereas for Aristotle, there, or for, for Albert, there was this actual distinct nature to natural science in a certain sense. He says, for instance, in comparing the study of natural works to theological questions that might come in, he says, in studying nature, we have not to inquire how God the creator may, as he freely wills, use his creatures to work miracles, and thereby show forth his power, we have rather to inquire what nature, with its imminent causes, can naturally bring to pass. To study nature is not to deny God's causality, to not to deny God's power, and even not to deny God's ability to, in a certain sense, overcome and, and uh, work miraculously in the natural world. And yet there were proper principles to the study of nature that were rooted in uh, a science of nature itself that was not completely subordinated to theology or metaphysics or mathematics. For instance, he made arguments about the fact that we could argue for the fact that the earth is round without drawing primarily on principles of metaphysics or principles of mathematics. For instance, you, he did not think that you had to has, you didn't need to start with the very notion of being as being to get to an understanding of, uh, to, to argue for uh, the, the sphericity of the earth. In fact, you, in a certain sense, couldn't get there. You needed certain natural principles that you found in the natural order. The fact that the earth is made up of heavy bodies that collect towards the center to make an, a natural argument that the earth is round. And while clearly, if we're talking about the sphericity of the earth, we're bringing questions of mathematics, of shape uh, and uh, uh, spheres and circles involved. And mathematics would play a role in this argument that it was not a purely mathematical argument to be made. There is a certain sense in which you would say, if you look at astronomy 
and the mathematics related to astronomy, you could infer from that that the Earth must be round because of the way, the consistent way in which the stars rose each night. And yet, that doesn't explain why the Earth is round until you understand the natural principles inherent in what it is, what the Earth is and what it is made of and how those things it is made of act. He argued that it was possible for uh, possible to make demonstrative claims in the science of nature itself. Not about everything, and even in a certain sense, not about most things. But there was a possibility of having a sort of certain knowledge. Not the certain the, the knowledge, the sort of knowledge and certainty we expect in mathematics, where we start with axiomatic first principles and work our way through to some conclusion, but that there is a certain necessity of natural causes and natural principles by which we can see not that uh, that not that we can predict the future necessarily in the natural order, but that given certain natural outcomes, we can argue for what causes must necessarily have been there to bring about those causes. He would not have argued that you could work from natural principles to say that all crows must be black, but he would say that given the fact that you have a black crow, you could argue for on what principles these crows are black, or on what principles the crows he knew about, which at times were not black, what principles and failures led to the fact that they know that they were not black. Now, I think it's important to say here that Albert is not, uh, while, while this abstract picture of how the sciences fit together, the relationship between metaphysics and mathematics science was, um, uh, in one sense, can be seen very abstractly, that for, science, for Albert, this was something he put explicitly into practice. Now, of course, this was not his day job. Albert was not a scientist per se, but he was a master of theology, and then a provincial of his province, a Dominican province, and then a bishop. His primary focus was the study of scripture and divine revelation. But from an early age, as is often attested, he just had a wonderful curiosity about the natural world and found time, it's not exactly where, it's not sure where he found this time, but he found time to integrate his study of nature into his uh, in, uh, into his work of theology, on it with in parallel, he he states in the beginning of his first commentary on the natural works of Aristotle, the commentary on the physics, he sort of gives an apologia for why it is that this master of theology is spending so much time writing about Aristotle's natural philosophy. He says in this somewhat long quote, but good quote, important quote: "Our purpose in natural science is to satisfy as far as we can those brethren of our order." who for many years now have begged us to compose for them a book on physics in which they might have a complete exposition of natural science, and from which also they might be able to understand correctly the books of Aristotle. Although we do not think we are competent ourselves to carry out this project, nevertheless, because we do not want to refuse our brethren's requests, we have finally accepted the task which we so many times rejected. Overcome by the requests of certain of these brethren, we have undertaken the work first to the praise of Almighty God, who is the fountain of wisdom and the creator, order, and governor of nature, and then for the benefit of our brethren, and finally, for the benefit of all those desirous of learning natural science who may read it. Wrote this when he was uh, founding, um, during his time in Cologne, when, uh, when, when St. Thomas Aquinas would have been studying directly under him. So I'd like to think that one of those certain brethren might have been Aquinas himself. Now, even uh, even with that, uh, the, the prolific amount that Albert wrote 
on the philosophy of nature, commenting and expanding upon all of the works of Aristotle on nature. Um, there are some who might say, well, yes, but that is, is that really doing science? Is he really a scientist per se? Isn't he just a cataloger, the ideas about nature from Aristotle and other people? And it is true. His works on uh, natural philosophy, broadly speaking, are paraphrases and comments on Aristotle's own works. But his, these commentaries involve many original contributions, both in method and in detail. And he has a wide range of original ideas and thoughts. And as fun as it would be to dive into all of the intricacies of Albert the Great's, uh, the, the fascinating aspects of Albert, Albert the Great's study of uh, minerals and plants and animals and uh, in the heavens, I just want to take a few particular examples. He was, uh, he, he is credited as the first to describe the, the isolation of the, uh, the element arsenic. He makes an argument about the fact in the first written account of the fact that sap in trees has no taste in the roots and only develops a taste when it, uh, when it is taken from higher up in the tree, uh, um, uh, fr fr from the trunk. Um, he notes that there are changes in coloration in species of animals, depending on where they live, darker in the south and lighter in the north and speculates on the fact that if there were animals at the North Pole, they would, must, they, they, they would almost certainly have white fur and very thick skin. Now, these are not just interesting speculative ideas. He also made a point throughout his works to emphasize his own observations. He is commenting on what has been given to him from Aristotle and many other catalogers of natural phenomena. And his texts are literal, littered with it is said statements. Uh, either by Aristotle himself or or by by other authorities, but he makes a point to emphasize in various places uh, uh, things that I have seen or I have experienced as distinct from simply what has been said. There are lots of amazing and interesting examples of this, but two I want to point out is if you look at uh, his commentary or his his work De Animalibus. Uh, there is a long catalog of animals towards the end in which he is drawing, broadly speaking, on lots of other pre-existing works on animals. Uh, and broadly speaking, most animals get about a paragraph, maybe two or three. Uh, and then you suddenly get to falcons, where there are 24 chapters on falcons. He was, in his youth, a falconer and loved falcon and loved and knew so much about falcons, he decided to put everything he knew into the work. Or uh, another kind of interesting and, and, and uh, example is in his description of the of the ostrich. He uh, he says, "I quote: It is said that this bird, the ostrich, eats and digests iron, which was in fact a uh, claim made in ancient uh, uh, works on on nature. But I have not experienced this to be so, since I have often spread out iron for several ostriches, and they have not wanted to eat it." They did greedily eat rocks and large dry bones that were broken into smaller pieces. So you see this curiosity in Albert that perhaps doesn't rise to the systematic way in which we think about experimentation in contemporary science, but lays out the importance of observation and drawing principles from the natural world and not presuming upon either authority or more broad principles that we have to actually dig into the depths of the natural, natural world to understand it, not simply work from principles of metaphysics or mathematics. So as a brief conclusion for this uh, first part of the, the, the lecture, I want to quote from uh, uh, a, a helpful quote from Fernand van Steenbergen, putting in context, in a certain sense, 
what Albert did for the sciences in his day, even if, in a certain sense, the sciences as we understand them only really come about a few centuries later. Albert the Great's great and essential merit was that for the first time since the origin of the Christian church, he distinctly established and clearly defined the status of science in Christianity. By that fact, he furnished the principles that enabled the crisis provoked by the introduction of Aristotelianism in the Christian world to be resolved. Even more, he contributed in a decisive manner to the integral development of a Christian intellectual life. There's a way in which Albert and in, in, in other corollary ways, many of his contemporaries helped to establish the study of nature as a proper science and discipline that is related to mathematics and metaphysics and theology, but uh, its own independent study. So now we fast forward a few centuries, uh, and there is an, a whole interesting history how what I have been talking about as natural science, or in a certain sense, uh, a philosophy of nature, uh, developed into what we now understand as modern science. And it might not have been, it was not as immediate and quick as many people often think. Uh, Newton himself, uh, in his uh, classic work, described the, um, uh, the Principia Mathematica. It was the mathematical principles of the philosophy of nature. The scientists, the first few generations of scientists after uh, the scientific revolution saw themselves as philosophers of nature. And it is only a later development that we distinguish science from philosophy. But if we do look today, we can see that there seems to be a strong push to separate philosophy from science in a way that Albert never would. For instance, you could look to famous scientists like Stephen Hawking. Um, who in his, his, his last book wrote very early on, traditionally these, quest these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our own quest for knowledge. Or you could look to Neil deGrasse Tyson, a popularizer of science, who says, my concern here is that the philosophers believe they are act actually asking deep questions about nature, and to the scientists, it's, what are you doing? Why are you concerning yourself with the meaning of meaning? The scientist says, look, I've got all this world of unknown stuff out there. I'm moving on. I'm leaving you behind. You can't even cross the street because you're distracted by what you are sure is some deep questions you've asked yourselves. I don't have time for that. Now, there's a part of me uh, as a, a, a physicist that recognizes that impulse and, and still in a limited way, might agree with it today, and that there are aspects of philosophy that I think can be a distraction and unhelpful, particularly to the study of nature. And ultimately, the truth is that as much as scientists might like to avoid it, philosophy necessarily seeps into what they're doing in the sciences at the edges. In the way that Stephen Hawking, uh, the, the quote I just read was on page two of a book that is arguably a 200-page work of philosophy. So there's a certain sense in which um, philosophy is seen as irrelevant to science. It's an independent sort of uh, project. Or even a certain sense in which even philosophers might say that uh, the proper goal and the, the only proper goal of science or of philosophy might be to explain what is going on in science. That's a whole complicated conversation to be had. Now, on the flip side, there are ways of saying that science is irrelevant to philosophy and or theology. Now, there are certain kinds of fideistic versions of this that you might see in a type of young earth creationism that 
that tries to deny the results of science in, uh, the, uh, um, in a very crude way. But there are also very much more sophisticated philosophical versions of this. There are broadly uh, a broad philosophical idealism, uh, which argues that we have to look inwards to, to to get to the nature of reality, and that while science is interesting and all, it's uh, it, it doesn't get us to the true knowledge that we could possibly want, uh, and we have to look inwards for that. And there's even arguably certain kinds of contemporary conversations about uh, uh, in, uh, metaphysics um, uh, or reality that are rooted in some ways more in logic than in empirical science. They might, uh, they often uh, try to incorporate aspects of science, but the arguments are more rooted in what is, what is what we can imagine, what is possible in a, uh, uh, in a logical sense, rather than trying to build our understanding of nature out of the observation and, and details of what we find in nature. And there is even a certain sort of Thomist version of this in which natural philosophy is argued to be independent of contemporary science. The argument is it takes different forms, but broadly speaking, the claim is that they're asking different questions, using different methods, and the results end up being completely independent. That natural philosophy asks about substances and makes per se arguments uh, and quid demonstrations uh, and draws on common knowledge that doesn't need the details of experimental science. And while experimental science is hugely productive in the natural world, it is built primarily on accidents, per se, uh, perhaps, or that it can't rise to the level of real demonstrative knowledge that we that we aim for in natural philosophy. And so we bracket off science as an important aspect of human society, but not hugely important for the actual study of natural philosophy and therefore other aspects of philosophy as well. Another aspect of this problem that we see rise come out today is the, the, the problem about the power of mathematics. I mean, the role and power of mathematics in natural science is greater and farther reaching than Aristotle or Albert could possibly imagine, arguably even than the Pythagoreans of the, uh, the ancient world could have uh, imagined. And it's tempting to claim that this makes contemporary science qualitatively different from whatever it was that Aristotle or Albert were doing. There is a certain confidence that mathematics makes a huge difference. Uh, and you see this both from the side of scientists who um, uh, reject questions around nature and uh, causality and say, look, if it's not in the language of mathematics, it means nothing to me. But you also see this to a certain extent in those Thomists I talk about, who make the argument that because mathematics is a distinct science from the philosophy of nature, uh, as, as Albert himself argued, as soon as you introduce mathematics into the study of nature, you're no longer doing the philosophy of nature. What you're doing is now mathematics. So how, uh, how is it that we, uh, in our own very difficult times, might try to uh, uh, bridge the gap between these, the, these conflicting views of the world? How might we follow in St. Albert's footsteps? Well, in one sense, the argument is, uh, is simply to follow in St. Albert's footsteps. In a paper delivered here at the Angelicum to inaugurate the academic year of 1935, the Dominican father Anisito Fernandez Alonso 
described the relationship between science and philosophy according to St. Albert the Great. It is a wonderful paper, but it is, in one sense, very inside Thomistic baseball. So I am not going to go into all of the details of what he's arguing, but I want to draw out some of the the notions of what he's uh, claiming in a way that is hopefully accessible even to those who aren't steeped in the Thomistic understanding of the division between, or scholastic understanding of the division between mathematics, uh, natural philosophy, and metaphysics. Now, so... uh, According to Sir Fernandez, he argues that Albert saw this and it should and it applies even to today that, yes, metaphysics is the highest of the philosophical sciences, but it is not the only philosophical science. It is formally formally distinct from uh, any sort of study of nature because the study of nature necessarily involves incorporating uh, the material aspects of the physical world in our principles, something that metaphysics abstracts from in a different way. Thomas would agree with this. Many philosophers agree with this. Uh, he makes a stronger argument to say that in natural philosophy and in contemporary science, we study physical bodies in motion and their interactions, that we are formally doing the same thing, the same study. Now, in comparison to metaphysics, the truths of metaphysics underlie the realities that we stu- study in the philosophy of nature. But we do not begin with metaphysics as such in our arguments for natural philosophy. To explain, again, using uh, uh, Albert's example slightly updated, to explain why the earth is round, we do not begin from the principles of being as being or the nature of unity. We, in certain sense, presuppose those notions at the beginning of the philosophy of nature. When we start to identify, uh, when we start to define motion and change and uh, form, uh, form and matter. We begin with principles proper to natural philosophy in general, and then moving down to more particular sciences when we think about uh, the way in which not just any body, but the body that is the earth acts. We recognize that the earth is a large collection of material bodies, and that as far as we can tell from modern science, all material bodies attract one another, the universal gravitation. Or to draw another uh, uh, Aristotelian example to, to, to see how these principles uh, and, and, uh, uh, that Albert uh, talks about to see how these work, to argue why, for instance, mules, the offspring of a horse and a donkey, are sterile, Albert and Aristotle wouldn't uh, say you don't begin from some metaphysical principle about the nature of species and genre uh, in the abstract. We do use the ideas of species and genera, but we're looking at them in the natural order. And the, the argument for why it is that these two animals of different species uh, uh, have an offspring that is sterile doesn't come from some sort of disconnect between the species in general. Um, but we have to look at the concrete biological details about horses and donkeys, uh, horses and mule, or horses and donkeys, and, and their reproductive powers, especially since Albert and Aristotle were perfectly aware of all sorts of hybrid species that could, in fact, reproduce the offspring of different animals of different species that were fertile. So we need to be careful about presuming that we can begin from, from, from some broad metaphysical principles to tell us exactly how nature should work. Again, this is not to say that natural philosophy and modern science can ignore metaphysics completely, as is uh, it's the proper principles of natural philosophy need to be supported and grounded by a correct metaphysics. It is possible that we can understand the proper principles of nature, things like gravitational attraction or biological reproduction, and even do a certain amount of good science with them, 
but still come to false conclusions about reality if we have bad metaphysical uh, ideas underlying them. For instance, that there is no such thing as a natural kind, that causation is only a type of correlation, or that the only kind of cause that's possible are efficient causes. Or if we just simply argue that all reality is, uh, all physical reality is simply mathematical with no proper principles, or that the only things that exist are, are material beings. These are all metaphysical ideas, like principles that draw from metaphysics that undergird the, the principles of nature and help to uh, put them in their proper context, but they are independent in some way. Turning to, again, the question of science and mathematics, it reminds me of uh, my sophomore year uh, in the first lecture on thermodynamics. The professor started us off by blurting out in the middle of his boilerplate course introduction, physics is math, physics is math, physics is math. Uh, there's a, a certain truth to this, except in the context in the context of warning budding physicists that if you're not comfortable with mathematics, you won't go very get very far in contemporary physics. But I'm sure that even he would agree that it's overstating it a little bit. It is true that some of our most convincing and powerful tools that we have in modern science are conveyed in the language of mathematics and measurement, again, in a way that even ancient Pythagoreans might have been shocked by. But that is not to say that the science of physics, let alone the natural sciences in general, is coextensive with mathematics or simply mathematics, or that we can build up all of science from some sort of axiomatic mathematical principles. As a simple and kind of silly example, consider the, the following uh, equations. I, I apologize to bring equation into a philosophy talk, but it's the physicist in me. So we have here uh, Newton's law of universal gravitation, familiarly written as force is equal to G, the, the universal constant of gravitation, times mass, uh, capital M and lowercase m, two masses divided by R squared. We could also write another important equation in physics, the Coulomb's law for electrostatic force. And while it is a different equation, it looks really, really similar. You have force is equal to K, some constant, times now Q1, Q2, charge one, charge two, divided by R squared. From a purely mathematical perspective, there's a way in which these are the same equation. And we learned in basic algebra that the variables, the, the, the letter you use for the variable isn't that important. It's just a placeholder for some, some number underneath it. And yet to the physicists, these are very, very different physical, describing very, very different physical phenomena. Because right, while there is a similar structure and even to a certain extent, similar uh, uh, pieces, so both of these involve R, the distance squared, there's a difference between what we mean by the mass of something and the electric charge. There's a difference between the, con the universal constant of gravity and, the, uh, and, and, uh, and, and Coulomb's constant. That there is not that, that while yes, we can express the mass of an object mathematically and a number, it is not in and of it, the mass of something is not in and of itself a mathematical object. It is an expression of a, what I would argue is a causal power. How do we understand the mass? We look at how objects react to being pushed or pulled. How do we understand what the electric charge is? We look at how things react to being uh, uh, pushed or pulled by electric charges. So we have to use the, the powers and causality in nature to distinguish between the mathematical, uh, seemingly similar mathematical formulas to describe different physical phenomena. So yes, mathematics is hugely important for the understanding of, uh, of, of contemporary science. And yet, just as important is drawing on the, the causal powers and causal structures that we find in the natural world. I would argue from a Thomistic perspective would be the accidents that we're finding in the physical world that we can quantify to describe the relationships, 
but are real accidents, real qualities with actual uh, with with actual causal powers. What I am ultimately arguing is that we still need a contemporary philosophy of nature. Uh, so, what exactly do I mean by this philosophy of nature? What does Fernandez mean, and how does it relate to this seeming distinction between science, uh, science, and philosophy? Philosophical investigation, uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the standard definition of the uh, natural philosophy, drawing on Aristotle and that Albert would agree with, is that the, it's the philosophical investigation into physical nature or, or mobile being, things that move or able to move. There's a certain sense in which it's not exactly the same as physics or chemistry or biology. I mean, when I teach my philosophy of nature class, it looks very, very different when I taught my introductory physics class. I do try to overlap here and there, but uh, but in, in the same way that an introductory physics class is going to look different than an introductory chemistry class or biology class. But as Fernandez argues, um, from the principles of Aristotle and Albert and Aquinas, and when we look at how contemporary science actually works, we can make a really strong argument: the method that quote the method of investigation of the natural philosopher and the method of the scientist are not opposed ways which have only some common experience as a beginning in common, but are two parts of the same method, arguably the same science in a, in a broader sense, the same philosophy in a broader sense, of which the first must be pursued by, or should be produced, pursued by scientists, and the other by the philosopher. For, as he says, uh, in the order of induction, where the scientist stops, there a philosopher begins, whereas in the order of deduction, the opposite is the case. So just as we can recognize that there are distinct sciences of physics and chemistry and biology, but at times the questions of one overlap and flow into the next. So there are more general questions that are traditionally associated with, the, with natural philosophy, the philosophy of nature. Questions about the very definition of motion, for instance, or the role of matter and form in nature, the role of final causality, questions about space and time in general. That flow into and overlap with the, the work and the methods and the, uh, the results of experimental sciences, even if at times the scientists don't necessarily recognize them. Sometimes some of the sciences take for granted certain general principles of natural philosophy as a whole, general principles of, the, of cause and effect, the reality of natural kinds, the distinction between things, substances, and their properties, accidents. Other times, they are questions the scientists might not even really be interested in. It's just not part of what they're into, the, the, why they got into science in the first place. It's not, it's not their, uh, it's, it seems parallel or, or, or superfluous to what they're doing. In the same way that a biologist, while well, he might be curious about theoretical particle physicists, may not be interested in, in learning the details of it. For instance, may I, you know, they may not just be interested, they may not have even thought to ask the question, what exactly is change? Or how do we ground the continuity of individual things amidst the myriad of observed changes that we find in study in experimental sciences. Now, good natural philosophy cannot ignore the established results of contemporary experimental science. Again, quoting Fernandez, in respect to many essentials and properties of this philosophy, the philosophy of nature, the aid of natural science is absolutely required, in which case, Natural philosophy is not the queen who commands these sciences, telling them what to do, as in a certain sense does metaphysics, as he argues elsewhere. But 
in a certain way, it is a handmaid receiving from them and subject to them. And to free it, to free natural philosophy from experimental science, from this servitude, is to kill it. We can glean much about nature in general from common experience, yes, but without a deep understanding of the particular natural principles that are found in experimental sciences, we are bound to make mistakes, as as, as, we, as we see Aristotle and Albert, even themselves, made certain mistakes in uh, the principles of, of the philosophy of nature. So, so seeing this on, on the flip side, so this is how uh, the philosophy of nature needs and depends on that, the experimental sciences. On the flip side, a good natural philosophy can, and I argue is, an aid and a support to the experimental sciences as well. Not that the natural philosopher is there to tell the physicist or the chemist or biologist how to do his job, but they can help ground what these other sciences are doing in a deeper understanding of physical reality. They, I would argue, can and should be tools for helping us understand how it is that science works the way it does and why it is it works so well. Um, and that they answer the deeper questions that at times we come across in the edges of the sciences. Questions that uh, plague us from th looking deeply at, so for instance, quantum mechanics or general relativity or the, the borders between physics and chemistry and chemistry and biology. In conclusion, I'd just like to say again that St. Albert believed that the study of the natural world was its own proper science with its own principles, method, and dignity. And to a certain extent, that's not a very, that's, that's not a debatable or, or, or uh, that's, that's not a, a controversial point today. But he, under, he argued that a part of this study of the natural world were not simply the experimental sciences, but this philosophy of nature in general, that they were, in one sense, part of the, 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 whole, the, this, the same science, which at times needed to dive down into particular species, looking at uh, details about chemistry or biology uh, or astronomy in particular. Now, I have focused in this talk on where St. Albert places the study of nature in relation to human knowledge as a whole and the study of philosophy in general, distinct from metaphysics and mathematics with its own dignity. I've argued that he is a great guide in this endeavor. That said, if we only follow St. Albert this far, I think he would be a bit disappointed. To turn once again to the words of Pope Pius XII, this time in a letter to the Master of the Order of Preachers on the occasion of uh, naming St. Albert the, doctor of, uh, the, uh, the patron saint of scientists, he states, it is especially for this reason, beloved son, that we dedicate, that we decided to select and constitute him, St. Albert the Great, as patron of scientists, in order that students of natural science, bearing in mind that he had been given to them as their guide, might follow in his footsteps and not cling too tightly to the investigation of the fragile things of this life, nor forget that their souls are meant for immortality, but use created things as rungs in a ladder that will elevate them to understand heavenly things and take supreme delight in them. May they discern the presence of God in all the forces of nature and in meditation and veneration, admire the incorruptible rays of his splendor.